Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family, Talk About Adoption and Infertility. On today's show, we're going to be talking about what twins can teach us about genetics versus environment. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. Now, one thing I was also fascinated with in the Minnesota twins and in this sample of younger Chinese twins that I'm studying here in California is just how quickly the social relationships evolve between these people after having known each other for such a short time. And it seems that the identicals do develop a much closer social rapport than do the fraternals. And this suggests that we are attracted to people with whom we perceive that there are various kinds of similarities. I'm Dawn Davenport, the Director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Organization, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We are a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model. That way you can listen whenever and wherever you want. You can also subscribe to the podcast to get notice of each new episode on your listening device, be it your phone, your tablet, or your computer. You can subscribe uh, on our by going to the radio show page, which is creatingafamily.org slash radio show, or whatever you, podcatcher you are using to listen to this show, be it iTunes or just any of the thousands of podcasters that exist, you can subscribe right on there. Just type in our, the title of the show, Creating a Family, and click subscribe. Uh, this show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. If you are struggling with infertility or have struggled with it in the past, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. For comprehensive resources, including infertility information, treatment options, and ways to save, you can go to the Faring Fertility website, which is faringfertility.com. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the latest things that are happening in the world of adoption or infertility. We also let you know about uh, the new resources we are adding to our site each week, uh, as well as our upcoming blog and show topics. And uh, gives you an easy way to submit questions uh, to be asked to the experts on our show each week. So please sign up for our weekly newsletter at any at the top right of any page of creatingafamily.org. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors. And these are organizations that believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. And some of these wonderful sponsors who allow us to bring you this show are Children's Connection, they are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation, uh, adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. We also have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption 
and assisted reproductive law, including providing a gestational surrogacy matching program, as well as legal services for independent surrogacy, egg donation, as well as embryo donation matters. Independent Adoption Centers. Their mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to both birth and adoptive families. They work with families in all 50 states and are fully licensed in California, New York, Florida, Texas, Georgia, Indiana, North Carolina, and Connecticut. Um, that's a list. So anyway, to find out uh, more information about them, you can go to their website. Uh, we also have Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited adoption agency with offices in both North Carolina and New York, placing children from, okay, here comes the list, everybody, Armenia, Bulgaria, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, Ukraine. They also do kinships adoptions. Uh, we have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have their Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program and has been providing embryo donation services for nearly 20 years, and they recently celebrated the birth of their 400th baby. They have just released a new magazine I should tell you about, too. It's uh, on both fertility and adoption, and it's called Pathway with the Number Two Family. And Spence Chapin, they are a full-service adoption agency that's been in operation for over 100 years. They are uh, focusing on a new direction now. They are focusing on children, older kids, harder to place kids, older kids, siblings, and, and kids with special needs. And what is particularly important is that they have eliminated the financial barriers by providing no-fee adoption services for families who can consider uh, some of these kiddos that are, that are harder to place. Uh, those are our gold sponsors, but we also have other sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an adoption or infertility service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, years in operation, programs, things like that, just a whole host of things that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us and we thank you. As I mentioned, on today's show, we're going to be talking about what twins can teach us about genetics versus environment, the old uh, nature versus nurture debate. This is the re-airing of a show we did in December 2009, and it has been one of the shows that we have linked to most often. It is one of our most requested resources uh, and one that we have, uh, have, have suggested in answering questions. Um, there's about there's about three, and this is one of them uh, that we continually come back to. It is a topic of absolute fascination to me, and I think to a lot of people. What? How much of our kids' basic temperament, their their mental health, their intelligence, their learning disabilities, if they have them, all the things that make them them. Uh, how much of that comes from their genes and how much of it from their environment? I think it's of, of continual fascination to adoptive families, but even more, it, it's also important to families that have been created uh, through uh, uh, fertility treatment. Um, on this show, we interviewed three of the leading twin researchers in the United States. Yeah, I was pretty much like a kid in a candy store for this show, as you could probably imagine. Those of you who have been longtime listeners know how I feel about research, and also I'm, I'm totally fascinated by, by the twins' research because it is so fascinating. Um, our researchers that we talked to are Dr. Matt McGue. He is a professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota, a behavioral and quantitative genetic geneticist. 
co-director of the Minnesota Twin Family Study and the Sibling Interaction and Behavior Study and Research Program as well. He is also an adoption dad. We also have Dr. Nancy Siegel. She is a professor of psychology and the director of the Twin Studies Center at the California State University, Fullerton. She's also author of two really interesting books. One, Indivisible by Two, Lives of Extraordinary Twins. And her second book is Entwined Lives, Twins and What They Tell Us About Human Behavior. So I hope you enjoy this show as much as many others have in the past, as well as uh, everyone here at Creating a Family. So welcome, Dr. McGee and Dr. Siegel, to Creating a Family. Thank you. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing well today. Thank you. You know, I have always been fascinated by the type of twin research where twins were separated shortly after birth and raised in different environments. Uh, and maybe this is in some ways, this is because in some ways it's the opposite of what many of us are doing in our families in which we take children with different genetics and are raising them together, which is actually part of what Dr. McGee is studying in his sibling research. But anyway, back to the twin separated at birth research. Uh, this must be one of the best ways to tease out the varying influences of genetics in the environment. Dr. Siegel, you've been studying twins separated at birth for some time. What type of similarities and differences have you seen between identical, and I guess the accurate word for that is monozygotic twins, twins that uh, were created by the same fertilized egg, um, but uh, monozygotic twins raised in separate homes. What are you seeing as far as the similarities and differences between these twins? Well, Don, in the studies of twins raised apart that I was associated with when I was at the University of Minnesota, we studied behaviors across a wide range of domains, intelligence, personality, job satisfaction, many different medical traits, and we found that all of them showed a genetic component at some level, but the degree of genetic influence varies. It's higher for intelligence than for personality, higher for personality than for job satisfaction. And across medical trades, there was variation as well. But I think the important point is that just about everything we're able to measure in the behavioral, physical, medical domains do have some degree of genetic effects. Now, one thing I was also fascinated with in the Minnesota twins and in this sample of younger Chinese twins that I'm studying here in California is just how quickly the social relationships evolved between these people after having known each other for such a short time. And it seems that the identicals do develop a much closer social rapport than do the fraternals. And this suggests that we are attracted to people with whom we perceive that there are various kinds of similarities. Yeah, in your book you talk about, uh, again, I think this was with identical twins, but almost the uncanny, un- uncanny mannerisms uh, that people have that you wouldn't, you would think that would be more um, environmentally influenced. Well, this is something that the weirder part twins have told us, and I've seen this in the adult study as well as in the study on the younger kids. It seems that, well, there are no single genes that underlie these unusual mannerisms, whether it's using uh, the to- washing your hands before or after using the bathroom, as one pair did, or giggling all the time, as another pair did. Uh, but it seems that these things have multiple genetic components. And so while with a single individual, it's very easy to say, oh, if he walks like his father or talks like his father, it's simply mimicking him. But when you see this in two identical people who've been raised apart, this suggests a whole new explanation, which is that genes must play some role. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you describe in one case it would, um, 
uh, flipping their hair or, or tossing or, 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 or uh, tilting their head when they're listening in a particular angle that was not the norm. Um, and you wouldn't think that that has a genetic component. That's true. That's what I saw in those young Chinese twins who were about four or five, and both parents described it, and yet we don't really know how to capture this in a systematic fashion because you can't really go and, and study this head-tossing phenomenon across yes. cases. But what we do find, though, that is striking is that you see these kinds of similarities much more among the identical twins than the fraternal twins. And when you see them in twins raised apart, this suggests a whole new way of explaining these things, which does take genetic factors into consideration. Yeah. Dr. McGee, you're studying the similarities and differences between adopted siblings, siblings who have share an environment but do not share their genetics. And I know it's not fair to, sell, to, to, to ask you to tell us what the differences are, but generally speaking, how similar are kids who, uh, who are adopted into a family and, and are raised in the same environment but have different genes? Yeah, well, they're similar in two domains primarily, I would say, at least among the domains we look at. Um, the first is in intellectual achievement. Um, that could be IQ. That could be how they're doing in school. That could be how they do on standardized tests. Um, the the similarity is nowhere near as large as you would see among monozygotic twins, identical twins. Uh, but there is significant moderate similarity of two genetically non two non genetically related individuals growing up in the same home. Now, one of the questions with respect to that first domain is, do those effects of the home that lead to their similarity when they're growing up together, do they persist into adulthood? What we see is that when they're living together, there definitely is some modest similarity. The other domain is, um, I guess, what we broadly call adolescent misbehavior. So <laughs> things like getting into trouble with the police, uh, abusing substances, being um uh, skipping school, um, that also shows a, a moderate level of similarity. Not as great as you would see among uh, genetically related individuals, but certainly something that's significant. Things that we don't see, we see virtually no similarity on, uh, an example would be personality. So whether or not a person is, uh, an adolescent child is extroverted, neurotic, uh, uh, agreeable, uh, those types of personality characteristics, they, they simply don't share with the siblings they're being reared with if they're not genetically similar to them. And that would argue then that that much of what we call uh, personality or temperament uh, is influenced by our genes. And is, is that what you're seeing as well, Dr. No, Spiegel? No, not, oh, no, I'm sorry, Dr. It, McHugh? It, it mean, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I wouldn't want to mislead your listeners that way. Um, what it means is whatever our personality, whatever creates our personalities, um, the, fam the shared family environment doesn't seem to be a powerful force in shaping our personalities. The forces are probably, based on twin studies and other studies, the type of work Nancy does, are genetic factors, but also environmental factors that are unique to each individual in a family. So environmental factors environmental exposures that happen outside the home or Don, maybe I, that happen. Sorry. Yeah, Dr. Sickle, go ahead. Yeah, can I pick up on something that Matt said a little bit earlier? Please, yeah. It, yeah, in my study of virtual twins, and let me define these for your listeners, virtual twins are same-age, unrelated children 
who are adopted into the home at the same time. So essentially they're raised like twins but without any genetic connection. Mm-hmm. Another way to get them is if a mother has a biological child and the near an age adoptee enters the home at the same time. So two ways you can get them. And I, like, like uh, Matt, I also have found significant moderate similarity in general intelligence and IQ for these kids when they're on average about six, seven. But we, we had the opportunity to follow a group of about 45 of them from the ages of five until 10. And I must say that when they got to age 10, the degree of similarity dropped off fairly substantially. So what we think is going on is that this shared home environment does boost the similarity while the kids are young and while they're living at home. But as they age and as they start to acquire more control over their lives, what they do, what they read, where they go, things of that Mm -hmm. sort, then these individual differences in general intelligence are going to be expressed more clearly. And some of our colleagues who have studied adopted siblings through until adolescence find that the similarity in intelligence is close to zero. By the time they reach adolescence. Correct. Yeah, and that's fascinating to me. I mean, I, I guess in a way, are, are we, we're, what we're focusing on is that when we as parents are thinking of the concept of nature versus nurture, we're, we're thinking of nurture being the environment that we create, the the, the type of the style of parenting we use, or, or whatever. But but there are so many other environmental factors outside of us um, that also influence uh, our children. And you've just mentioned some. I mean, just you know, peer influence. Um, um, yeah, the pre- prenatal influence too. I mean, what goes on in the womb might have some effect, and you know, the kinds of idiosyncratic individual experiences that children have outside the home. Right, and we're going to come uh, at the end. I want to talk more about the prenatal. We've gotten a question that specifically relates to that, and I would like to to, to get back to that. So, it, it's, it, I guess what I've always heard was that the the range of intelligence is set by our genes. Where in that range we fall, uh, our environment has a strong influence. Is that still the current thinking, or, is, or am I dating myself here? I think I you're probably... That that... Go ahead, Matt. Go ahead, Nancy. That's fine. Go ahead. Uh, then you can follow me. Uh, I would say that that's probably generally correct. Um, certainly, uh, experiences, degree of education is going to have an effect, but you know, you're not going to take any child and turn them into an Einstein. And I think that, you know, parents need to take realistic views of what can be accomplished and what can't. You know, we hear a lot about uh, the the value of reading and singing to children when they're young, and certainly yeah. nobody would ever deny the importance of that. But the thing is that different children will will uh, respond to those kinds of experiences differently. And for some children, it might really cause them to blossom. And for other children, it might be information overload. That's, you yeah, know, that's interesting. Uh, Dr. McGee? Nothing to add. That's fine. Okay. You know, the the other thing that I think about too is it is is how personality can influence our uh, academic achievement. Um, a, a child who is uh, very persevering um, is going to do better, and a, or a child who uh, you know, I'm sure there are other characteristics that uh, temperamental characteristics. Um, how about as far as uh, what is the research showing? about the effect of DNA or our genes on learning disabilities and things such as ADHD. Um, does it, is, is, uh, is there any evidence to say that there is a genetic component uh, that is stronger than, say, the environmental component for that, Dr. McHugh? Well, most developmental disabilities, ADHD, Tourette's syndrome, autism, 
learning disabilities like reading disability are probably, if you ask in aggregate the importance of genetic factors, um, then genetic factors appear to be extremely important, um, maybe more important there than almost any other uh, psychiatric or psychological disorders. So certainly for autism and ADHD, genetic factors are, and reading disabilities, they're very important. If you ask, well, do we know the specific genetic factors that underlie that overall aggregate genetic effect, for the most part at this point, despite all the success of the Human Genome Project, we'd have to say largely no. But clearly genetic factors are very important. A lot of people are trying to figure out what those genetic factors are. But we know from twin studies that, 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 that genetics overall is very important. We have a question from Karen. She says, I'm interested in this subject. I'm the mother to three children, ages 23, 10, and 5. My little one is from Korea. My two others are biological. I love them all the same. Uh, God has blessed me, and I feel especially grateful to have my youngest through adoption, but I am somewhat boggled by his behavior. Michael is a loving boy, happy, loves to draw, uh, and play with other children, enjoys helping me bake, and these are some of his wonderful traits. Here's what boggles me. Uh, he did not let go of me until he turned about four. I had to carry him all the time. He is also very demanding, almost rude. He will not sleep alone. He never has. I love him, and that's the way he is, but I would love to hear what you think about whether these traits are just his nature. Dr. McGew, do you have an opinion on that? Well, um, clearly he came. I, I would, If by nature she means is it his genetic endowment, that's hard to say um, because he had certain experiences before he came uh, to join her family. The, um, but clearly he has certain dispositional qualities he came with, um, and she's reacting to, to those. It really is an illustration of something that Nancy pointed out earlier, is that his behavior, which reflects either his early uh, experiences or his genetic inheritance or most likely the combination of the two, but his behavior is affecting the experiences that he has now. He's shaping the behavior of his mother in, in getting her to respond to, her, to him in a certain way. If I could add that to Don, um, yeah. you know, I don't know how many placements this little boy has had prior to entering her home, but one thing we do know is that when children have had multiple placements and have not had a chance to really bond to, an, to one adult, they tend to be a little clingy and a little demanding, and, and those, that child seems to fit that picture. Now, again, I think that what Matt said is true, that the child comes into this world with certain predispositions as well, but we also know that multiple placements can have this effect sometimes. Yeah, we, we, she did not uh, indicate that in, in her letter. You know, uh, Dr. McGew, it's fascinating what you say, and I think that as a parent, I, sometimes I squirm to think this, but I think it is so true that our children, the individual, uh, as individuals, influence how we parent. Uh, and we don't want to think that on some level, but of course it's true. Um, some kids are simply easier for uh, for us to parent, and, and some are not. Uh, Dr. Siegel, do you see that when you see uh, identical twins that are being raised in two different homes? They've got different parents, and different the parent's temperament uh, is different as well. Actually, what I'm finding, and this is more anecdotal at this point because we haven't really 
uh, combed the data that's systematically yet, but what I'm finding more is that the children are shaping the parents. That's and, what I meant, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, the parents do have different temperaments, of course, and in this this pair of Chinese twins that, that you've read about in my chapter, one little girl is being raised as an only child, and one is being raised with two older biological siblings of the parents, unrelated to her. Mm-hmm. And the parents of the child who's in the, the threesome are just so extraordinarily struck by these behaviors that they don't, they can't quite figure out where they come from. So in many ways, these parents are, are being molded by these kids. And, you know, you see this very clearly in fraternal twins, I think more so than with ordinary biological siblings because fraternal twins are the same age. And uh, I always believe that parents of fraternal twins really have the bottom line in behavior. They're the ones who can really see genetic effects so clearly. Huh. In what way? Well, because they have these two children who are the same age, and yet they find that they have to respond so differently to them. Yeah. Uh, one yeah. child may be more demanding. One child may be more extroverted. Um, you know, however the children are, are behaving, these parents have to sort of change their behaviors. And I think that a very important take-home message is that in order to be a good parent and a fair parent does not mean treating your children exactly the same. I think that a much better parent is one that responds sensitively to the children's own particular talents and preferences. Well, yeah, yeah, and any of us who have more than one child ultimately have to figure that one out, um, even if we, we think that we can, um, even if we think that we can avoid that. Here is a question just, from, go ahead, doc, uh, Dr. McGee. Well, just to elaborate on what Nancy said, which I think is is, is very important, I, I, it's actually from our research and what I believe is an area where adoptive parents have an advantage Adoptive parents may make fewer assumptions about the child they're rearing. Um, they may see it more as a geni- the child as a genetic puzzle that they need to understand in order to properly parent the, the child. One of the things, for example, that we see in our data with our adoption studies is that parents' expectation for the, the academic success of their children, if they're the biological children of the parents, a typical nuclear family, then it's often based on what the parents themselves uh, achieved. So that if they went to college, they expect their children to go to college. Um, In the case of adoptive families, we see that their expectations are more nuanced and actually more closely match the abilities of the children than than in the biological families. So adoptive parents, because they don't know as much about the child, may actually... Um, be looking at the child for signals as to how to properly parent the, the, them. You know, I've, I've often said that that our children, it is more, e- it's easier to say this about adopted kids, but our kids are like a Christmas present, um, that we open them up and we aren't really sure uh, what they're going to be. But with our biological children, we so often make assumptions of what they're going to be. And you're exactly right that with an adopted child, it is easier not to make these assumptions. And yes, and still, even in a biological family, if you have more than one child, you can be awfully surprised. I mean, there can be an awful lot of Christmas presents in a home like that because children in a family, contrary to what many people think, are very, very different. Uh, yes, except for the uh, so. well, except for the adults, perhaps uh, in a biological family, have a harder time realizing that to begin with. Um, after a while, life tends to uh, drill that into you, but. Uh, I can see uh, Dr. McHugh's point that, that adoptive families may have an advantage there. Here is a question from Tracy. 
Uh, how much has genetics been shown to affect obesity? Dr. McGee, you want to start with that? And then, Dr. Siegel, if you have any uh, research on that as well. Um, well, if you look, there have been both twin and adoption studies of obesity. And what they suggest is uh, obesity is a, a strongly genetically influenced trait. Um, the, um, and, and the, in fact, the, the data are rather overwhelming in that regard. One of the challenges in, in obesity, just like in, in most areas of genetics now, is to find what the underlying genetic, specific genetic factors are. What are the genes that actually lead to the genetic influence on obesity? And in this case, some progress is, is being made. We're, we're beginning to understand why people are at risk for obesity in terms of their genetics. In some cases, it may be metabolic, but in other cases, surprisingly, some of the most recent genetic work suggests that um, people are at risk for uh, becoming obese because they don't have a good sense of being full when they do eat. So obesity is, is a, a highly heritable trait. But, and Dr. Siegel, have you done any research on this with twins? Because for me that would be hard to, without separating the environment, how would we know? Because children who are raised in uh, by obese parents, you would think that simply habits alone would be enough to, uh, and, and also the food that is being served. Right. Well, we have looked at weight similarity in identical twins raised apart, and we do find that they do show a significant genetic component there. So it may be that eating habits and sensation of feeling full and the kinds of foods that you like, the kinds of foods that you will seek out as an adult, uh, may be more similar. We've seen some surprising similarities in food preferences. Uh, for example, I just studied a case study of identical Korean twins, one raised in the U.S. and one raised in Korea from birth. And the surprising thing was that, that both twins had this real aversion to fish. And that might be understandable in a, you know, a, a woman raised in upstate New York, but it's a little more surprising for someone raised in Seoul, South Korea, where fish right. is a big part of the diet. So, right. you know, is there, but see, this is interesting because it suggests to us, is it something about the taste, about the smell, the texture, what is it? that caused them to have this aversion for it. Mm -hmm. So we now one other point is that we do see a somewhat stronger genetic component to to weight gain and, and body size in in males and in females, maybe because of pregnancy, hormonal effects, things of that sort. But females do tend to show somewhat less similarity than male twins do. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, other than the physical appearance, we all know the things such as eye color are, and, and ultimate heights and hair color and things like that are heavily influenced by our genetics. What other traits um, do you see that are most controlled by genetics and which ones are uh, more controlled uh, by environment? And I realize I'm asking a really general question, so you can answer in really general terms. And, again, we'll start with you, Dr. McGew, and then, then go to Dr. Siegel. You're talking about behavioral traits, of course. Yeah, well, other traits, and yes, and I'm focusing more on behavioral or temperamental or, or other other traits, introversion, extroversion, things like that. Well, the the, the most heritable behavioral traits, I would say, are um, IQ and developmental disabilities like ADHD and autism, whereas characteristics like personality are more intermediate in heritability, and the traits that are most weakly heritable would be things like um, political ideology, social attitudes. Um, Nancy mentioned earlier, I think, um, job satisfaction. Mm -hmm. right. The 
but even in those cases, take we've done work here on on religiousness, um, it, which is a very interesting trait. Yeah, um, that how would religious, be actually. how yeah. religious a person is, and we've looked at this in our adoptive families, and what we find is that when people are living together, when the adolescents are living with their parents, the adoptive children are very similar to their uh, adoptive parents, and it's not just going to to, to services; it's it's actually uh, referring to, to religious books and um, for guidance. So it's not just that the parents are forcing them to go to services. So there's a lot of similarity, and it's not genetic because it, we're seeing it in the adoptive families. But as they grow older, and this is true, and, and I think Nancy mentioned this earlier, as they grow older, that similarity actually declines quite rapidly, and, and particularly it declines once they leave that rearing home. So, yes, they might be very similar in religious beliefs, when they're living together, but come back ten years later, and it might be a completely different picture. So, is that kind of arguing that genetics wins out at the end? You know, who you are is going to once you leave the environment, you're going to be who you're going to be. Is that is that kind of what that's saying, Doctor McKee? It, it, well, I was Go ahead, say, Nancy. You, it, it, yeah, it doesn't mean that genetics is everything. What it means is that genetics plays a stronger role. But it doesn't mean that genetics is everything. That would be a, a real misunderstanding of, of how development works. And, and as Nancy pointed out before, too, is that it, it would be misleading to, 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 to conclude that that, it, that it's just our genet that what we what happens is the genetics becomes determinative as we get older. In, in part, what happens when we get older is we gain gr- greater control over our environments. We make choices about how we want to live, whether or not we want to pursue higher education, um, the people we want to affiliate with, the leisure activities we pursue. And when we're left to make those choices, we're not completely independent in making those choices. There are certainly constraints on our choices, both financially and personally. But when, when we are allowed to make those choices, we tend to make choices that reinforce our dispositions. Mm-hmm. in our interests, in our abilities. So mm-hmm. if I'm a lousy uh, tennis player, um, most people who, who have no talent in tennis or music or whatever aren't going to spend a lot of time pursuing those activities. And, and the, the fact that we can select things based on our qualities tends to reinforce those qualities. So probably the diminishing impact of the rearing home environment may reflect the types of experiences we select for ourselves. Yeah, and this is where you see the increasing genetic effects. And people often wonder how identical twins raised apart can be so similar when they've been raised in such different environments. And it's what we think is going on is, is that because they have more control of their environment, they can select those experiences and those people and those places mm-hmm. that, that they truly like. Just like Matt said, if, you're, if your parents force you to take tennis lessons and you don't enjoy it, you're not good at it, you're probably not going to pursue that as you get to be an adult. But you asked also, Dawn, about behaviors that don't show much of a genetic effect. And right. I, seem, I seem to recall two studies of twins that showed very little genetic effect. And these were somewhat older now and only done one time. So they certainly need replication. But one was in how quickly or slowly you fall in love. Are you the kind of person that falls in love immediately or do you take some time to think about things? That showed very little genetic effect. Now, that not, surprises me. I would yeah. think that would be a personality trait that would be genetic, not the falling well, in love, but impulsiveness. Yeah. Right. Impulsiveness is, now whether that carries over into who you choose as, as your partner is yeah. probably yeah. another question, but 
again, this is only one study and has not been replicated. And the other area was in sense of humor. Um, I've seen some mixed findings on that. So I guess the question is, is still somewhat out on that one as well. How do we measure sense of humor? I mean, uh, you know, mine's good, yours is bad, that type of thing. But I mean, how do you measure? Well, well, you're uh, not looking. You're not looking at goodness or badness of sense of humor. What you're looking at is do people respond to the same pictures or the same words oh, in the same okay. way? Do they find the same things funny? Okay, got that, you. That would yeah. be how you would t- test it out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, slapstick humor. We we both like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. Now, now, both of those surprised me. I would have uh, I would have assumed the things that you find funny and uh, how quickly you fall in love would have been a genetic component. Um, so it just goes to show you what, what I don't know. Yeah, but I, again, I caution you that those have only been done in very right. few instances, and we really do need more work in those areas. Well, are the, just uh, as an aside, are the number of, of, of possible subjects of twins um, having been separated at birth, I would assume that that is decreasing, your, your number of well, subjects. Is that you know, the case? You would think so, but the more I stay in this business, the more I am surprised at the sheer numbers of twins reared apart that are still out there. And I think what's happening is the twins are being separated for other reasons. In the past, the studies done in the 30s and in the 60s and and in the 70s and 80s when I worked with Dr. Bouchard in Minnesota, twins were primarily separated because of maternal health, maternal death, illegitimate birth was a big factor, or financial handicap of some sort. Today, twins are being separated for other reasons. One whole source, well, one whole source are the Chinese twins that I'm studying, the one-child policy, which restricts uh, families to two children in urban areas, two in rural areas and one in urban areas, has led to the abandonment and adoption of thousands of of female babies, and twins are among them. Another source is artificial reproductive technologies, where families are willing to have multiple embryos implanted, and yet if twins or triplets or quads result, sometimes these parents are ill-equipped to manage them and will give one or two away. Um, you know, I deal with cases all the time where, where there are, still are single mothers who are unable to raise twins, not due to any kind of social stigma, but simply because they don't have the financial capability mm-hmm. or the emotional uh, strength to do so, and twins may be separated for that reason. But adoption agencies are... Um, more sensitive to this problem now and are keeping twins together. One other case I just want to mention is that very occasionally in hospitals you get these switched at birth cases where a pair of twins and a single child are born at or about the same time and a single baby gets switched with one of the Mm -hmm. twins. And I'm working on a fascinating case of that right now. Um, I've spoken to some experts in this area who who look at at, um, how how you associate babies with mothers in hospitals. And he claims that these baby switches occur much more often. And, of course, among them will be separated twins. Wow. Oh, gosh. I mean, every parent's nightmare. Every parent's nightmare. <laughs> you know, there was a, a book, Identical Strangers, uh, right. written a number of years ago. I'm sure you're both familiar with that. And in that book, as and I've not read the book. Um, uh, it's on my list to read. Uh, but as I understand it, uh, they were separated intentionally because there was a belief at the time that it was better for twins to be raised separately so that they could each be their individual selves. Um, Surely that's no longer the case. Well, here's a story on that one. 
there was an agency, the Louise Wise Adoption Agency in New York City in the 60s, That's right. and the advisor to that was Viola Bernard, who was a psychiatrist at Columbia University, and she was of the opinion that twins were better off separated because that way they would get individual attention from their parents, but that was not a research-based belief. That was just something that maybe she developed or picked up on based on one or two cases, so she advised the adoption agency to separate twins, and what happened was that there was a psychoanalyst in New York named Peter Neubauer who learned of this and decided that he would prospectively follow these twins. And he ended up following five pairs of monozygotic twins and one set of monozygotic triplets. And these parents never knew that their children were part of the twin study, never knew that they, they were of multiple birth status. So they, they, were, they weren't intentionally separated for research, but they were intentionally separated because of Viola Bernard's beliefs, but because they were separated, Peter Neubauer took them into his research. But he never published that, and as I understand it, the, the results have been, um, not, uh, have been not classified, not the right word, but they are not being made available that's until right. some time in the future because of the controversy associated with the, the practice. That, that's right. There's an archive at Columbia University under Viola Bernard's name that's been sealed for a number of years, and also one at the Yale Child Study Center where a lot of Neubauer's records have been kept. And... Um, as far as publications goes, Peter Neubauer and his son wrote one book called Nature's Thumbprint, where there's one chapter on one particular pair of twins, and then there's one article in a psychoanalytic journal on another pair, and that's really all we have. Interesting. Well, moving on to a, something slightly different, one of the most uh, difficult parts of adoption is that prospective adoptive parents are often in the position of having to make what really is a life-altering decision, both for themselves and for a child, on whether or not they should parent a particular child. And, and this decision is often hinged on very little information. Sometimes we have just one to two pages of information on a child and on the child's birth parent's background, but parents are then asked to decide what's right for that child and what's right for them based on this information. And sometimes certain risk factors are noted in the background, and parents want to know the relative risk that their child may develop this condition. So what I'd like to do is throw out certain of these uh, common risk factors, or even if they're in uncommon, but some of these risk factors that parents, adoptive parents, might see, and find out from you both uh, what the uh, heritability factors is. And, and I realize that you'll have to just give me a rough range, but that would be that would be fine. What about um, for bipolar? Uh, Dr. McGue, do you have a feel for uh, if, and, and I think we would have to almost say if one of the, uh, either the birth mother or the birth father, so a direct uh, uh, direct uh, in-line relative has uh, bipolar, what are the odds that the child will have bipolar? First thing, maybe your listeners, it's a technical issue, but it's an important one when you're talking about a family history, is saying something is, when a, when a geneticist says something is highly heritable, it's not necessarily the same as saying that if the parent, a biological or birth parent has the characteristic, the child is very likely to have the characteristic. So bipolar disorder is a highly heritable disorder. It affects, and it's of course a devastating disorder, it affects roughly 1% of the population sometime in their lifetime. It's highly heritable, it affects 1% of the of of the population, if a parent has bipolar, the risk to a, child, a genetic parent has bipolar, the risk to the child is about 10%. That So it can be highly heritable, and of course having a 10% risk is a tenfold increase in risk over the general population, but indeed 
the vast majority of children of a genetic parent who has bipolar do not have bipolar. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that 10% or that tenfold increase, is that based on studies of children raised by their bipolar parents? That's right, or have, yeah. But, so but, and, and, and there have been adoption studies. Oh, there have been, there have been adoption studies as well. Um, the, the, the classic study is out of Belgium, and that would suggest that the, that increase, that tenfold increase, is really independent of whether or not the, the, the genetic parent reared the child. Okay, well, that, yeah, so that's it, an important distinction, it would seem. Yeah. All right, so, and that is whether either the birth mother or the birth father has been diagnosed bipolar. Yeah, and, and if both of them were diagnosed, then you okay. are talking about a very high level of risk. Okay, so um, if both, okay. Yeah, I mean, then, I, I don't know that the data, maybe Nancy, you know, I don't know if the data exists for bipolar, but the same thing is pretty true for schizophrenia. In fact, the rate of schizophrenia in the general population is also about 1%. The risk if you have a genetic parent who's schizophrenic is 10%, so it's a tenfold increase. But if both your genetic parents are schizophrenics, then the risk is on the order of 50%. Yeah, that, that so, sounds about right to me, Matt. Yeah, and I, I don't know if the similar data exists for bipolar, but I would suspect you'd probably it'd probably be very similar. So... It, and, and I'm sure your your uh, listeners can appreciate if you're talking about genetics, then then knowing that both birth parents have the have the characteristic is is very informative. But if only one is, it's important. But again, most will not suffer the disorder that that parent has. Here comes we have an email from Karen. Um, my husband and I are applying to adopt from foster care. From reading over the background of some of the kids, we see really dysfunctional families and other, and often some form of violence or criminal activity. The baby that we are fostering and hoping to adopt has had his birth father in jail for mother murder. I'm sorry, and his birth mother in jail for drugs. We want to be fully prepared for what our child may need in the future. Is the tendency towards violence inherited? Is the tendency towards drug addiction inherited? Uh, let's take what I think would probably be the easier, uh, based on my limited knowledge. Let's talk about drug uh, addictive type behavior, and that would I would assume apply to either alcohol or drugs, although I'm not sure. Dr. Siegel, uh, how heritable is uh, the tendency towards uh, addictive addictions? Well, these behaviors are heritable. Um, I don't know what the precise figure is. It probably varies somewhat from study to study. These things are heritable, but as Matt pointed out earlier, it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between parents and children, and to say that something's heritable at the level of population is quite a different thing than saying that it's, you know, it's going to be transmitted in a particular case. But I think that it's information that parents just may want to pay attention to so that they can make informed decisions as a child ages. Uh, I think knowing the background is important because, you know, certain behaviors uh, can, can be expressed. Maybe they can take preventive measures, but it's certainly not a one-to-one -one correspondence. And that's important for our children to understand as well. They are um, they are not doomed to repeat their birth parents' mistakes um, just because and, they have those genetics. And, and one way of thinking about it is that, which is what Nancy's saying, of course, too, is that what we inherit in these cases is at most a vulnerability. We don't inherit the disorders in, in, when we're talking about behavioral disorders. But we might be more vulnerable to becoming addicted to nicotine or to alcohol 
Um, but perhaps knowing that, knowing that you have some increased vulnerability or your parents knowing that may help in 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 trying to better prevent the, the likely, that likely outcome. Right, and it sounds like that, that's where Karen is going to, uh, is coming from. That's her perspective. Now, as far as um, violence or, or a tendency towards violence, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of, I'm not even sure that there's, there are certain personality and temperamental traits, uh, impulsivity comes to mind, that, that could get you in trouble. But there's not, when we study personality, uh, and I'm not speaking of sociopathic type of disorders here. I'm just speaking in general, as, as Karen is asking about a tendency towards violence. Is is that even something that is identifiable that one can test, uh, Dr. McHugh? The tendency towards violence? Yeah, she's I'm, asking I'm about. Yeah, she was asking about the tendency towards violence, and I'm not even sure that I can. I mean, I'm trying to figure out what. That's not a measurable something that we talk about with personality. Impulsivity, for for instance, would be. But well, I mean, there are certainly personality questionnaires that assess aggression. Aggression. Um, well, that's true. I hadn't thought about aggression. That's a good point. Yeah, um, and it, it, a standard uh, personality uh, item that gets at aggression is, I like a good fight. I mean, that's in fact oh, okay. a personality inventory that I'm sure Nancy's used very much, uh, as well as we've used here, is. Uh, that would be an item, and so you. I mean, it's based on self-report, but you can certainly assess by self-report or by report of others levels of aggression in individuals. But how? But in a dysfunctional environment, uh, a tendency towards aggression could come out in criminal type behaviors, and of course that can happen in a very functional environment too. Uh, but. And in a different environment, uh, that could be the uh, ability to get on the debate team and you know and really tear into your opponent and win. Uh, so I guess aggression can be expressed in any different um, socially acceptable or non-acceptable. Yeah, yeah th that's an excellent point because you can channel these tendencies in different directions. Uh, if you think about some sports players, you know, who might come from some underprivileged areas. Channeling all that air, all that energy into doing very well in the sports field might be one thing, but not given that opportunity, you know, they might end up in gangs, things of that sort. Now, so think about this too. In another example, suppose you're born with the tendency to be allergic to penicillin, you know, which is a very dangerous thing. If you go through your whole life without ever having penicillin, you're going to be just fine. But if you if you do have a shot of penicillin, that can be quite detrimental. So it it really is a function of the environment that that predisposition is expressed in. Yeah, that, I mean, that does make sense. Um, I'd like to move on before we run out of time to, um, we got to, let me read the email first and then we'll talk about it. This is from Susan. Dawn, I'm interested in hearing your guest's take on nature versus nurture via the embryo adoption. Embryo adoption is like regular adoption in that your child is not genetically related to you, but you have that additional connection in that you have grown the child inside of you and birthed and nursed it. I think it's an interesting situation to discuss in the nature versus nurture debate. Um, and I agree with her. I think it's it's uh, fascinating. And another area that I also think this comes out in, and it's happening more frequently now, is in the area of donor, donor gametes, where either the egg or the sperm have, have been donated. Um, have, have, um, Dr. Siegel, have you seen any research uh, that's been done on either the donor gamete community or the donor embryo community? But in, in what context? Well, in the context of the influence between environment, 
uh, well, the first is between environment and genetics. That's the first thing. And then the, what I'd like to move on to is the discussion of the whole concept of, of epigenetics or how the environment can influence the expression of the, of the genes. Well, I, I don't know that there would be any greater similarity, if that's what you're getting at, between a mother who adopted a child versus a mother who actually uh, gestated a child through embryo donation. I only have spoken to one woman who underwent this procedure, and I remember it was a very positive thing for her. Uh, she felt extremely close to that child and as if the child were hers. But, you know, I, I really can't speak to that other, in, in any other way than that. Um, one very interesting study that I have seen, though, in terms of parental satisfaction, if you're interested in that, is mm -hmm. yeah. that there have been studies that have looked at parental satisfaction towards children that are biological, um, families where the child is biologically related to one parent or the other through artificial reproductive technologies or um, other kinds, or, or the child is related to uh, neither parent. And what's very interesting is that in the adopted cases and in the, the in vitro fertilization cases, parents experience more satisfaction and, and just a greater happiness of being a parent. And maybe that's because they've had to go through expenses and so much difficulty to have the child. But I thought that was an interesting uh, finding. When you say more satisfaction, compared to what? Compared to an adopted? No, no, compared to ordinary biological parents and children. Ordinary so, parents who have biological children. So parents who have conceived through IVF were showing a greater uh, uh, percentage of satisfaction than parents who conceived uh, naturally. Right, with the parental um, role. Mm -hmm. How about uh, with adoptive? Uh, was that part of the study? Yes, they did use adoptive there, and that really fell more into the group of the people who did the ART, the Artificial Productive Technologies, in order to get children. So the biological then, parents who stood alone. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, so adoptive parents and, and parents who have uh, conceived through assisted reproductive technology uh, have showed a greater percentage of satisfaction. Well, yes. that's interesting. Yeah. Do either of you have any information then? on if there's been any research or even can you um, um, can we extrapolate from other research as to the prenatal environment and how it influences the expression of genes. And, and let me say to begin with that, that I'm aware of uh, the negative influence in things such as severe malnutrition or through alcohol exposure. That's an example where clearly there's a negative influence on how the genes are going to be uh, expressed because of the poor prenatal conditions. But what about where there isn't a necessarily a negative uh, influence? There is a uh, a belief, and uh, in the in particular the donor gamete donor egg community, that the mother by by nature by, by the fact that it's her environment and her uterus that the child is growing in is actually contributing to the ultimate expression of the genes in that child. Uh, Dr. McGee, is there any evidence to support this do you know of? Yeah, th so this is the area, as you alluded to earlier, called epigenetics. And what epigenetics essentially means is that there can be changes that um, affect how genes are expressed. And this area of research is very exciting, but it's really in its infancy. And we we really know much more now from um, model organisms, from mice and, and rats, about epigenetic phenomena than we do uh, on humans, although we presume that the same phenomena are growing on in humans. It's just harder to study them. So, for example, the classic study in this area, and the, by classic it's not that old, yeah. uh, but yet it's a, a wonderful demonstration of how maternal factors can have 
a long-lasting impact on gene expression. In this case, they took mice who were prone to obesity, um, this particular type of mouse, and they fed the mothers either a, a diet that was uh, rich in a certain substance called folate, which is they actually did through, by giving the mothers garlic, or they didn't give the mothers uh, garlic. And what they found is that the mice that were uh, reared, that came, were in utero with a mother eating a lot of garlic, when they grew up, they weren't obese, whereas the other ones retained the obesity quality of that particular strain of mice. And the reason for that, the, 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 the difference in, in risk of obesity, they could actually show through very careful molecular studies, really uh, stem from how the mothers were eating. So the mothers were eating garlic, they didn't get an obese child. Uh, in this case, a mouse pup, but the ones that didn't ended up with an obese pup. And it was how, the, how that diet, maternal diet, affected the expression of the genes in the, in the two types of pups. So we know these things occur. There are other examples, uh, again, in mice and rats, that maternal behavior very early in life and in utero can have long-lasting effects by changing gene expression what the implications are for humans now, I think it's just too early to tell because the, the researchers haven't worked out the, the relevant systems. I think that, that newborn or new mothers, or rather pregnant mothers, are being encouraged to have folate supplements as a way of present, preventing spina bifida. I think that's right. Yeah, that's already happening, sure. Yeah. Right. Well, not only that, this but is a, lot a different phenomenon. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's, yeah, that would seem to be a, a different phenomenon. Well, you know, the, the, um, the whole area of uh, embryo donation um, is is rife for study. Uh, now, how you find your subjects, I don't know, but uh, here you have genetically related embryos being uh, transferred into different uh, un- non-genetically related women. And um, if, if the, those offspring could be studied, that would be an interesting way of perhaps figuring out um, uh, some, some more information on the... Um, uh, the, on the problem with that, though, uh, Don, would be that those embryos would not be genetically alike. They would be That's genetically true. related. Correct. Uh, I suppose the ideal experiment is one that we never can do, and that would be to take... Uh, split embryos, monozygotic twins, and plant them into different uteruses. But that's, you know, the impossible experiment. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and thank goodness, I would add. <laughs> yeah, at least when it comes to humans. <laughs> yeah, well, when it comes to humans, for certain. Dr. McGee, you've been studying adoptive families. And this may be a little unfair, but, but uh, in your studies, have you come up with certain traits that adoptive families can have that that you see that correlate to uh, adolescents and adults, adopted adolescents and adults, who are doing well by any of the measures that you use to measure doing well? In other words, tell us how, to, how we need to be good parents. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> that is a hard question, especially at the end of the, <laughs> the, end of the yeah, hour. But yeah, exactly. The things, Sum it all up on a Friday. It's going to sound like a little cop-out, and I suppose it is, is um, – <laughs> but it's actually accurate, is we began the study, um, our adoptive family study, in order to better understand family influences, um, family environmental influences, because psychologists for 100 years have been trying to understand family environmental influences by studying families that are also genetically related, and it was never clear 
what the the basis for the associations they were observing. So, for example, we used to think that schizophrenia was due to having a schizophrenogenic mother until we actually did the genetic research to to show that really that probably reflected some sort of genetic mechanism. So in our case, we're trying to understand, really, I think, from a very new perspective of how families work, and we're only at the early stages here as well. I actually think that the types of outcomes I'm looking at, which is primarily adolescent deviant behavior, that parents in adolescence have much much weaker influence on those traits than the other siblings in the family do. So one of the things we're focusing in on is not the parents, but the older sibling. So if we're talking about drug abuse, um, if nothing else but getting access to, to illicit substances, we actually think the older siblings in a home, in an adoptive home, may be having a greater influence, both positively and negatively, than the parents in those homes. There are there are certainly factors that, that parents have an influence on, too, but but at this point, it's hard to, to summarize that in a, in a short period of time. Do you mind if I quote you to the older children in my family to put a little more pressure on them? <laughs> um, I expect yeah. you to behave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dr. Siegel, have you come up with anything in your studies as far as environmental things that we as uh, adoptive parents can do? Well, I guess what I said before, Don, is just to really be sensitive to that particular child's uh, behaviors. You know, it's not even so much in adopted families. I think it's in all families. Mm-hmm. Uh, the that children are just going to be very, very different. And mm-hmm. uh, one great example I can give you is a family I studied where the mother naturally conceived quadruplets, but they came out as two sets of monozygotic twin boys. So there you had two sets of monozygotic twins and four sets of fraternal twins, if you pair them every which way. And you know, these are kids raised at exactly the same time in the same place were enormously different. And the mother had to really alter her, her rearing style to make it compatible with each child. So I think that that's really the bottom line for families, whether it's biological or adoptive. Well, on that perfectly good uh, note to end, that's, that sums things up really well. I had read a quote and I, um, uh, that uh, when somebody, when a psychologist was asked which was had more influence, nurture versus nature, he said it would, um, he, he could only respond by asking which contributes more to the area of a rectangle, its length or its width. <laughs> and that's really what I'm, I'm hearing from you is that there are certainly uh, genetic influences, but they're not overly controlling uh, any more so than our environmental influences. Uh, Dr. Matt McGue and Dr. Nancy Siegel, thank you so much for being our guest today on Creating a Family. To get more information on Dr. McGue's fascinating studies, you can go to, now get your pen out, this is one of those what they call ugly URLs. It's a tough one. M-C-T-F-R dot psych, which is P-S-Y-C-H dot UMN, for University of Minnesota, .edu. For more information on Dr. Nancy Siegel's research, where should they go, Dr. Siegel? They can go to my website, which is uh, www.psych.edu slash nsiegel, or they can try Amazon.com for my two books. Yeah, and or ask your local bookseller to buy them, uh, to, to stock them, uh, because they are well worth it. 
If you have found this show helpful, please post about it and link to it so others can listen as well. As a nonprofit, we are truly dependent on your help in spreading the word. If you agree or disagree with what, you've, what we've said today, start a discussion about it on Facebook or on your blog or in any of the forums you participate in. We want to get people talking and thinking about this subject. This show will be archived on the 2009 Big List at the radio page of creatingafamily.org, and it's also available for download as a podcast from iTunes. And the easiest way to get it from iTunes is just to use the iTunes button on the radio page at our site. Our shows are evenly divided between infertility and adoption. On next week's show, which will be December 16th, we'll be looking at the evidence on how acupuncture can affect the success of IVF and other fertility treatments. So please join us and tell others about the show. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.